3: If you're loving this
1: podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together.
3: As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real
2: time, including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcasts. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons.
3: Welcome, everybody, to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. I'm joined by my friends, Christy Penley. Hey, hey. And Ben Leonard Sternke. Hey there. Hi, Ben.
2: Is Leonard your real middle name?
1: What do you think, Christy? I'm gonna have to Knowing say Matt? yes.
2: He said it so confidently, <laughs> no, but I don't was, know. know. But you didn't He's say confident. Benjamin. You didn't say Benjamin. Yeah,
3: I know he doesn't like Benjamin. Also, Ben. That's not two to one now, true. Leonard. So two yeah. to one, we win.
1: Yeah, I mean, Leonard's not my middle name, and I don't necessarily <laughs> not like Benjamin. So you're 0 for two, Matt. 0 for two. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it just depends on how you count. It really does.
2: Yeah, I, I think true. I'm in
3: a. I think I'm in a good mood today because it's um. You know, living in the Midwest, and it's, uh, we're approaching May. It's raining mm-hmm. a ton. The grass mm-hmm. is like, the grass is like fluorescent green right now. Yeah. And the trees are getting eyes. ready to burst their leaves, and it's just gorgeous. Yeah. I, I love it. It is.
1: Birds are singing. It's still I winter s- here. So many birds talking. <laughs> Oh, sorry. sorry,
3: Christy. It snowed
2: last night in Colorado.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, well. Christy, mm,
2: you know, but, it's, <laughs> but spring is coming, I believe spring it. Is in the
3: air. I yeah. don't know. I feel like Colorado Springs has a whole different climate because you have, you have like three seasons a day. This is so true. You you have like winter in the morning, and then it gets like spring in the noon, and then by 5 p.m. it's like 83. Yeah
2: so true. true. Oh, man. Yes, yeah. but Very spring is coming. Large
1: swings, yeah.
3: Yeah. Well,
2: yep. <sighs> yeah, Somebody It, does, me.
3: it, does, it yeah.
1: feels like we're beyond the snowing. It doesn't feel like we, we got snow. Uh. When was it? It was the day after Easter. I think we got snow mm-hmm. last yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, but that felt like, you know, there were some One. deeply offended Indiana people that were just like, what are we doing <laughs> now? And uh, But uh, it. Uh, I feel like we're beyond it now. Even though, so. yeah, I don't know, temperature's going to, it was like 83 this weekend.
2: Oh my goodness, that's amazing. But yeah. the
1: temperature's going to dip. I don't think it gets above 70 uh, all week, so. Yep. It's more typical Indiana, April.
3: So. Warm weather. I got. We have a sprint the next four or five weeks. I'm like, I'm going to smoke two briskets. Mm. And then I'm going to come, and then I'm going to get on an airplane and go see Christy Penley and her
2: family. That's right. Come on. Bring in my And maybe whole we'll brood. have a smoker by the time you come. Oh, I know. I you've know. Been, I you've been pitching ball. that to Paul, haven't you? I know. I have. I'm like, I just like gave it up. I was like, do, would you want this? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an expensive little gift, you know? Device, yeah, as I called it. It is.
1: A device, yes. Device. piece C- of technology. Contraption. Technology. Yeah. Talk
3: yeah. to me before you do anything, Christy. Mm-hmm. Okay, Don't okay. just willy-nilly throw down... <laughs> a check for any kind of smoking yeah. device. Okay. Um, Do your research and, by talking anyway.
1: to somebody who's done their research?
3: Yeah. 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 Uh we've got a treat for you today. We've got uh Dominic dubois Bois Gilliard back on the podcast talking about his latest book that was a gra- this was this was a Gravity Commons live podcast mm-hmm. um Subversive Witness, all about yeah. leveraging power in the kingdom for good.
1: Mhm. I'm
3: I'm, mm-hmm. I'm all about this, by the way.
1: Yeah. Dominique's got some great, uh, perspective, great stuff to say. Um, yeah. And we had, we had, uh, I remember this is, so we, we record the main part of the universe for the gravity commons live and for our commons members, we do like an extended Q and a afterwards. I remember this one, uh, was so good, Mm -hmm. uh, because Dominique kind of got into some areas that he doesn't, he doesn't often get into, uh, in public, um, and so it was really, really interesting to hear some of his perspective uh, on all those things. And I, you know, I'm not going to share that stuff, obviously, Shh. just to yeah. honor Shh. you know honor the fact that we uh, um, we kind of did that as a smaller group. But anyway, that's that's the kind of stuff we like to uh, the conversations we like to convene in the Commons. Mm-hmm. And so, yep. yeah, it's a lot of fun.
3: All right. Well, we got some things going on. Ben, you're traveling this weekend. Going to do. Workshop in workshop. Lexington.
1: I'm going to be in Lexington with a church uh, we work with uh, down there. So hey, if you're in Lexington, I don't know. I don't know if I'll have time. Uh, it'll be a quick in and out uh, kind of Friday night, Saturday morning, and then uh, I got to get back uh, to Indianapolis. But might have time for coffee or lunch or something if you're right on. In, or if you're around in Lexington. Yep. Yes, that's going on.
3: And. And then the first week of May, Ben and I will be in Nashville for a retreat. So if you're in Nashville, let us know. Maybe we have some time yeah. to meet up. Maybe have some time to meet up. And then Christy and her husband are doing weddings now together. I They're just know. marrying we just people, hither married and yon.
2: so fun. <laughs> we married somebody this. this past weekend. and Did you? Yeah. 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 It was really great.
1: Together was, with Paul, huh? Yeah.
2: Like yeah. It's the first effort? time we've ever done a wedding together. Oh, that's um, fun. And it was fun. It was really mm. good. That's so cool. That, Very good. That could
3: yep. be a new thing for you guys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and Matt, you are uh, you're starting a new cohort soon.
3: You're right. I got a my gravity, I got the list of names right here. Gravity Leadership Academy cohort. Yep, we got we got room for one more. Yep. Um, so yeah, we got. Uh, let's see, we got uh, four women and two men in this cohort so far. So fun. super super excited about it. So yeah, yeah hit me up. Yep,
2: yeah, if you're interested. And my my uh, evening cohort on Thursday nights just finished up recently, and so people, I'm ready to do another one. Yeah. So Christy's come got on, capacity, on, Sign folks. up, let's do
1: it. Yeah, yeah. And um, you, you are allowed. You can request Christy if you want. That's um, happened. No guarantees, you know, because <laughs> she is kind of the cream of the crop. I but, love uh,
2: cohorts. You guys know this, so yeah. Well, you're it good is, at leading um, them,
1: and yeah, so
2: fun. Yeah, so. lots
1: of good stuff happens uh, when people go through this. So, yeah, check it out, listeners. If you haven't uh, checked it out yet, Gravity Leadership Academy. Uh, it's it's probably the most transformative thing we do. It, it's mm-hmm. a lot of time. It's a lot of uh, energy. It requires mm-hmm. a lot. Um, and so we usually want to help you discern if it's right for you. But if it is and you've got the capacity uh, and the bandwidth for it, um, it really it really is – it really is something that uh, can transform your life, so.
3: Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this- uh, Let's get in the podcast. This book. Mm-hmm. This book could transform your life, too. It's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Helps us see how power works in scripture. And uh, Dominique is a wise guide, so. Yeah, we need this. Let's get into it. Here we go. All right. Dominique Dubois-Gillard joins us today on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. He's the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores, which won a 2008 Book of the Year Award for University Press and was named Outreach Magazine's 2019 Social Issues Resource of the Year. Also, he was on our podcast chatting about that as well. Uh, His latest book, what we're talking about today, Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege, won Inglewood Review of Books 2021 Book of the Year Award. He serves as adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary and its School of Restorative Arts and serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. Dominique, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back.
4: Yeah, excited to be back with you. All really appreciated the work that you all did last year helping people make it through the pandemic.
0: Mm.
3: Well, I think well, it was
4: <laughs> through with the comma, because we're still in it. So to be clear, but right yeah. in in as it crescendoed. Um yeah.
3: Yeah, making it. We're making we're all making it through. Um yeah. Well, Dominique, let's uh let's chat about this book. I think Um, maybe as a way to bridge just your work in general from the two books we've chatted about, um, it seems like you are particularly interested in how power works in scripture and in our world today. Could you maybe just open us up with how did that become an area of concern or interest for you? Yeah,
4: I think one of the things that really guides a lot of the ministry and writing I do is I try to see. So let me dive back real quick. So my job nine to five, which is an illusion for anyone who's in ministry, (laughs) um, is that. I am a pastor to pastors, helping pastors make connections between scripture, discipleship, and our call to be reconcilers in the world. Mm-hmm. I do that for our 875 congregations throughout North America. And mm-hmm. so as I go and I walk with pastors in rural, urban, suburban contexts, I really try to discern kind of what is. What are stumbling blocks or things that are hindering us from bearing a faithful witness, and those when I see those things on the ground really kind of paralyzing or stagnating the witness of the body, those are the things that I really try to speak to and mm. so in both of these books, uh, these have been realities in which I've seen have really hamstrung the witness of the church, particularly mm. the evangelical church, and trying to figure out how do we realize that scripture is actually a blueprint for us and actually a lamp unto our feet as we try to navigate the complexity of our day and time. I think sometimes we've been taught to read scripture as if it's just this ancient collection of stories that really has no real bearing on our actual lived experience on the ground. Maybe it has some moral kind of bearing for us individually, but like not how we civically and socially engage. Um, And I don't think that's true. And so I think as I've uh, tried to go back to the text to try to illustrate where I see scripture actually prophetically speaking to our present moments, it's really led me to have to reckon with power and systems and structures and the disparities and the distortions that sin breeds within them. And really to ask the question, well, once we have eyes to see this, what does this actually mean for us as Christians because of who and whose we are?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we benefit from that work. I think one way to describe this new book uh, is that you take a trip to the scriptures and essentially look at how power works, like who has it, who doesn't, why that matters, and what faithful people do do with it and do about that imbalance or inequality. Um, Maybe, maybe as just a way to like set the table so that we all are hearing words the way that you intend to use them. Uh, What do you, what do you mean when you use the words privilege? What, what is privilege? How do you know that you have it? And, and what is it when you say leverage it? What are you referring to?
4: Yeah, so the way that I talk about privilege in this book uh, really takes two forms. There is privilege that is connected to our bodies and how our bodies are ascribed currency within a fallen world, and that that currency that is ascribed to certain bodies and denied of other bodies is something that's antithetical to the biblical truth we find in the first pages of scripture that tell us that all people, regardless of how their body is composed, are equitably made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. So this first notion of privilege is really talking about the fact that in a sinful world, There are systems, structures, people, groups who are going to treat certain people with more civility, humanity, humanely, and with more dignity than others because of things like mental cognition, able-bodiedness, race, gender, class, land of origin, citizenship status, those kind of things. So that's where I talk about privilege as a byproduct of sin. Uh, Because that is not the way that God intended it to be. Um, And those are not patterns and logics that which Christians can conform to. Those are patterns of this world that we're called to be divorced from because the Holy Spirit has renewed our minds. Mm. The second way I think of talk about privilege is really a positional privilege where we take seriously the fact that uh, some of us have access to tables and places and spaces of power and influence that other people don't. And I believe that it's a clear, consistent kind of illustration throughout scripture that God actually puts Christians in those places and spaces for us to bear witness to who and whose we are so that we can actually subversively use that access to power to actually bring correction and transformation in places that desperately need it. I talk about uh, Christians as having the ability to be like the leaven and the loaf in places of distinction. And Mm -hmm. so those are the two different ways that I talk about privilege um, and really understanding that the main thing I really am trying to grapple with is like the world expects people Christians and non Christians, to always see privilege as something that we can exploit for our selfish gain and to make our lives better and more comfortable and to distance ourselves from the suffering of the world. But Christians are supposed to look to the model of Jesus as to what we're supposed to do with uh, privilege and in the midst of the temptations that Jesus has in the wilderness, in the midst of Philippians 2, we see a radically different model. And that model tells us that privilege actually has a missional purpose. <laughs> and I believe that that missional purpose for the people of God is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world, and that we're supposed to sustain specifically and strategically live in a way where we forsake the opportunity to exploit privilege for selfish gain, but we subversively leverage privilege and what we're supposed to do with it, quote unquote, by the ways of the world, so that we can bear witness to who and whose we are. Mm.
3: Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Dominique, um, I I think the um uh <laughs> sorry Christy. You're good. Um I uh <clears throat> I think the uh, the thing that I'm thinking about as you say that is that um, it feels, uh, so I think most Christians would agree, of course, we're not supposed to exploit our privilege for our own selfish benefit, right? Of course not. But what I hear that's different in what you're writing um, from a lot of other spaces um, where this is talked about is that. We are specifically called to notice and recognize what privilege we do have, and intentionally leverage that on behalf of others, rather than become like privilege blind, right? Or power blind? Or like, well, I don't, I don't know. We're all equal in God's eyes, so, um, so I don't know. You know, like if I have privilege, like I don't know what that, what that is, and I don't know what to do with that. I, I wonder if you could tease out the difference between those two things. Like, what's, what's the practical effect when people try to pretend like? you know, they're privilege blind or power blind or, you know, we're all just equal and I don't need to really pay attention to this because we're all equal under God?
4: Great question. And let me get to that after I name one thing that's really important that I also try to do with the, uh, the conversation. So acknowledging privilege is not about condemnation or shaming or guilting one another into coerced actions. I believe Christians are called to acknowledge privilege because it's real and because doing so liberates us from its power confronting and addressing privilege frees us to live fully and uh, freely into our creative purpose, which again, for me is as the people God to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. And so I think even this notion of a kind of privileged blind uh, kind of prohibits us from reckoning with the realities in which we live. And so for me, I like to One of the things I also tried to do in this book is most of the times when we have conversations about privilege, it's pretty much exclusively relegated to race. And while we must reckon with racial privilege, there are multiple manifestations of privilege. And if we only lock the conversation into a racial analysis, then we don't have to do the hard work of understanding like what you were talking about, Ben, the expansiveness of privilege and how it ultimately connects and is applicable to so many more of us than just white people in that way. But me as a male in particular, I have male privilege, and if I don't reckon with that reality, then that's actually not going to allow me to faithfully leverage my privilege in ways that allows me to faithfully love my sisters. So I like to give the uh, example of the fact that I'm a male in the Christian speaking circuit. I get invited to speak at conferences um, pretty regularly. And as I get invited to speak at conferences, sometimes I realize that everybody who's speaking is a male there's not one single female that's been invited to speak. The world would expect me to just take those invitations and accept them and platform my voice on those stages. But because I have eyes to see that my sisters have been excluded from the table, I can actually subversively use my influence and my ability to be at the table to say, while I Appreciates you wanting to platform my voice. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to come if you're not also allow, allowing my sisters to bear witness to mm-hmm. their their pastoral gifts or their prophetic preaching mm-hmm. talents. Um, and so I get a chance to use my influence to actually bring correction to a system that's been s- distorted by sin that excludes my sisters from being being able to bring their gifts and talents to the table to edify the body. Yeah, and so I think uh, kind of. Uh, privilege neutral analysis would never allow me to see that that's part of my Christian responsibility to actually bring correction and transformation. And I really root that in, you know, this truth of scripture that tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. And I think part of how we've missed the mark in our translation of that is we've thought about that as reconciling broken people to God's self. And while it does include broken people, it also includes broken systems and structures because that the world encompasses all of that. And so as the people of God, the hands and feet of Christ, we're supposed to be living on mission empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually be bringing that recognition reconciliation and that restoration and transformation in the midst of all the brokenness that we encounter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right on. I'm getting excited.
2: Dominique, <laughs> you just made me tear up. Yeah. But can I just say, thank you. Like, thank you as like a woman who loves to preach, who often doesn't get the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I saw that played out actually what like, two weekends ago, we went to half the church conference and Matt invited me to be a part of that. And it was a real gift, um, to be able to share the stage with him and to be able to share speaking and, and communicating. Um, I'm curious to hear from you. How do we learn to see it? So many people Mm. just don't see it. So teach us, help us. How do we learn that?
4: Great question again, um, and I think a lot of the reasons why we don't see it is because we haven't been taught to stop and sit with the nuances in Scripture that are really intended to give us eyes to learn to see this. So for a perfect example, um, I, one of my favorite biblical passages is it, uh, Exodus 1, 6 through two ten. This is essentially the story of Moses being born into the world. And I've heard this story preached and taught on since I was in diapers. And I can tell you, I have never in the midst of preaching and teaching had a pastor in a sermon ask us to really sit with the complexity of the quandary that Moses' mom finds herself in when she's living as a Hebrew in the midst of the Egyptian empire. And the Egyptian empire is a flourishing, prosperous empire, but all of their prosperity is rooted in the dehumanization of their Hebrew neighbors, It's rooted in the enslavement and exploitation of them. And that exploitation grows to the point that ultimately Pharaoh passes a law, because of his fear of losing power and status that says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. So Moses's mom, we find at this time, is with child with Moses in her belly. And she is in this impossible situation. She either has to follow the law and put her beloved child to death, or she has to break the law and ultimately become a criminal. And in the midst of such a situation, like how does Moses's mom believe that the gospel was good news? Like, and I love the way that Howard Thurman talks about this. And he talks about like, we really don't reckon with the fact that so many people in our broken world live with their backs up against the wall. And Moses's mom is like the epitome of that. And she ultimately has to really pray and discern what to do. And guess what? The spirit, prompts her to break the law. I know that goes in the face of all of the Bible studies and Sunday school lessons we learned about, um, you know, to be a good Christian and to be a good citizen, faithful citizen of the kingdom are synonymous. Um, but uh, there is this way in which uh, we see that the Spirit compels her to break the law. But what the Spirit, what the passage is also trying to do is trying to tell us, like, there are people in life who have to make these impossible situa- uh, decisions when they are in these totalitarian regimes, when they are living under colonized, conquested realities. And I think when we don't stop and sit with the the quandary that Moses' mom is in, then we brush over the fact that Scripture is actually naming the fact that systemic sin is real, that not all laws are faithful laws that are reflective of God's uh, will and intent for the world. And if we don't reckon with that, how are we ever going to faithfully love those neighbors? And so I think a passage like that, I give one more quick example um, where Acts 6, 1 through 7 is this beautiful story of the early church trying to figure out what does it mean to become a multi-ethnic church, and it's really one of the first passages where we see ethnicity explicitly rear its head in a way that's becoming a divisive issue for the church, and the church is actually doing really good things. The church is growing, they're out there serving, they're out evangelizing. They are living on mission, but they're ultimately blind to the fact that there is this uh, blind spot within the missional outreach that they're doing. Uh, Ultimately, they're trying to uh, continue this Old Testament ethos of the people of God having eyes to see the most vulnerable and responding to their needs within their midst. And they're doing that. So they create, they find out that there's these vulnerable widows who need help and they start to serve these widows. But the challenge is that there's two different widows who are being served. Um, And the two different widows are having a divergent experience within the food distribution program. And so you have one group of widows who are the Hebraic widows, who are cultural insiders, who actually have people at the table of power who actually identify with them, who uh, identify with their lived experience. They, they speak the dominant language um, and they understand the nuances of the culture. And then you have the Hellenistic widows who essentially come back as immigrants who don't speak the language who don't know the nuances of culture and don't have anybody at the table of power who represents their interest or who can see their lived experience and they ultimately come to the leaders and say hey there's a discrepancy in the food distribution program and we are being overlooked and not treated equitably as our sisters and i love the church's church leadership's response because in it we see their maturity in Christ. So all too often today when people bring a discrimination complaint before the church, um, what they hear is a kind of defensiveness, a kind of like, well, one or they they are blamed for being the problem, for addressing the issue, because the issue is actually what's causing the division, as opposed to the blind spot that they had um, as leaders. And so they don't do that. They ultimately hear the discrimination complaint. They soberly sit with it. They They examine the system, and they come back and say, you know what? You're right. There is a discrimination going on, albeit unintentional. It's still happening. And If we're not just going to fix the problem temporarily and place a bandage over it, we realize that we actually have to reconstruct the table of power because there is nobody at the table of power who actually sees and identifies with this suffering and this kind of marginality. And there's this recalibration that happens. And I love this story because it says not only did non-Christians see this and pay attention and start to become more interested in the church? But it says that many ministers in the area became more faithful to the gospel because of this uh, prophetic witness of these leaders rooted in a Christ-like humility that actually says, you know what, we don't always get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong, and when we do, we're not going to try to cover it up. We're not going to do an apology, no apology. We're not going to try to blame you as being divisive, we're going to say we missed the mark, we're going to commit to being better, and we're going to make the changes needed systemically to make sure that this problem doesn't reoccur. And not only does that happen, the gospel explodes right there in Jerusalem. What's beautiful about the story is that later on down the line, we see that these new leaders are the first to articulate the gospel to the Gentiles and expand the kingdom beyond uh, what it historically had been. And so this beautiful story about re- connecting evangelism and justice, which for me is something I'm super passionate about because so many of our congregations settle for an either-or gospel uh, that really cares about evangelism and doesn't care about justice or cares about justice and marginalizes how, the significance of evangelism. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ when it's the both-and.
3: Hi. I'm Mac from Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, and I've been through a Gravity Leadership Academy cohort. Here's the bottom line. If you want to be discipled and learn how to make disciples, then this is for you. I serve as a pastor, and GLA has had a huge impact on me and my leadership. Not only will you find tools and resources that are highly reproducible, but you'll be connected to a group of people seeking to center their lives in the love of Jesus. If you like the Gravity Leadership podcast and the conversations taking place here, I think you'll love going deeper in a Gravity Leadership cohort. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Dominique, so what you're saying is one of the ways to learn to see power in our world is to understand how it's Power is working in Scripture, and so your book is basically uh, each chapter takes a different story. You you already mentioned Exodus. You mentioned Moses's mom, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, You also talk about the Hebrew midwives in there doing similar things, kind of trickstery kind of things, and um, I I think we could have a whole podcast about what are the ways marginalized, powerless people disrupt or subvert uh, evil power. And how does God, uh, I mean, the Hebrew midwives like did lie, yeah, they straight up lie to (laughs) you know to Pharaoh, and God blesses them for it and gives them children when they
4: couldn't have them before, right? Imagine that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you, you also talk about let's see who else you talk about Esther and and Paul and Silas and Jesus and Zacchaeus, and I was thinking about the New Testament letters because this this bifurcation between evangelism and justice um you know I'm thinking about like the book of Romans and how it's sort of the the justification by faith has become shorthand for the gospel for many evangelicals but but we miss what Paul's doing there in that book is pastoral theology yep he's trying to help two groups of people that have a power differential learn how to be one and so then, justification by faith becomes the pastoral strategy of on-the-ground reconciliation, right? And and I I wonder I wonder if you could just speak a bit about um, how do you, how do we how do we evangelize via this mechanism of justice? How do we tether that together the way that, for instance, the apostles do all the all the way throughout their epistles? How do we do that today? What is what is one location where that could take root?
4: Yeah. So I think for me, the uh two guiding scripture. Well, let me do uh three three guiding scriptures for me in this. Uh first, Philippians two. Uh, it really tells us how we're gonna constantly have this temptation to do uh to follow our fleshly impulses, but we are supposed to be people who are supposed to be um. Imitating Christ and kind of taking on the mindset of Christ. Um, then uh, I'll connect it to John 13, 34 and 35, which to me is the real, the real one that I really want to focus in on, where Jesus gives us a new commandment. And he says, by this, uh, love one another as I have loved you. And by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Uh, and I think right now in our world, there are a lot of theories about how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. But very few of them are rooted in this kind of radical transformative love that Jesus is talking about. Um, it's not by culture wars. It's not about why we, what we stand against. It's not about who we exclude. It's about how we love that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. And so, and then I want to connect that to Isaiah 58. Because there are very few passages that really break down tangibly what it means on the ground for us to bear witness to who and whose we are, like Isaiah 58. Um, and one of the great ironies is, as we bring to close this Lenten season, um, as people talk about Lent and they engage in fasting, there are very few churches that root that call in fasting in Isaiah 58, which is very problematic, because this is exactly where God says, this is the kind of fast that I desire. <laughs> and so in the season, in the midst of all the fasting, um, but I love it because it tells us that, you know, one of the missional purposes of the people of God are to be repairers of the breach. And what I love about mm-hmm. that phraseology is it doesn't say repairs of the breach you created repairs of the breaches that your sins cause it says repairs of the breach which helps us to understand like we are born into a world that already has breaches that already has gaps and chasms um Mm -hmm. those gaps and chasms are the results of our foreparents sins but you know what scripture doesn't tell us that we're only responsible for confessing and uh and repenting of our own sins. Um, there are multiple times where Christian leaders have to confess and confront their own sins, but also the sins of the poor parents. And I love this on the ground because it helps us to see, like, whenever we encounter the individualistic responses within the body of Christ of, well, I never owned slaves, I didn't participate in indigenous genocide, I didn't help support Japanese internment camps, we can see that that is a response that's rooted in conforming to the pattern of this world, not actually having our minds transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit we are people who are supposed to be able to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to the brokenness that abounds. And as we see it, we have to understand that we are called to interrupt it. And we interrupt it oftentimes by taking all that we have at our expense, which means doing a thorough analysis of all of the ways that we have access to power or influence, and we leverage those things, again, not to make our lives more comfortable, not to distance ourselves from in the suffering of the world, but to enter in as Christ did on our behalf in the incarnation. Now we're not salvific. Let me be very clear, but there, that is the model. Like when the world says that we don't have to be concerned or we can turn a blind eye because that's oppression or injustice isn't happening in our communities or isn't happening to us and our children, and we have the luxury or i.e. the privilege of turning a blind eye, the gospel says that's not an option for the people of God. Mm. And as we take that seriously and we see the breaches in our society, we we get invited into um, Biblical narratives like Paul and Silas. So I'm talking a lot. I'm going to land it here though. But I love Paul and Silas' story because they get caught up in the Roman judicial system mm-hmm. and they are Roman citizens. Um, but when they get brought before the Roman magistrates, they are intentionally misidentified as Jews. And they know that there's a strategy behind why they're misidentified as Jews, because they understand the Jews stood no chance of receiving justice within Rome's courts. Mm-hmm. Um and the Roman magistrates were more committed to justice, I mean, were more committed to profiteering than they were to justice. And just to connect this to our day and time, it's very similar to our judicial system, which Brian Stevenson oftentimes says that uh. In our judicial system, uh, a person who is rich and guilty is going to be treated better than a person who is poor and innocent oftentimes because it's wealth, not guilt, that informs culpability within our present system. Mm-hmm. And so in the system, though, Paul and Silas are denied access to a trial. They're stripped. They are beaten with rods, and they are falsely incarcerated All really because they're misidentified as Jews. And the Roman magistrates have no care or concern about anything that they do until it comes to their attention that these were actually Roman citizens. And when they became aware they were Roman citizens, the text says they became alarmed because they realized, oh, crap. We're going to be held accountable for the fact that we have actually denied justice because these are people with a certain status, a certain privilege, a certain standing in society. And when we see that kind of thing Paul and Silas, are this, this story is this beautiful illustration that we're called to act against our own, quote-unquote, self-interest interest within a fallen world. Paul and Silas, the whole time, all they had to do is say, you know what, we're actually Roman citizens, you can't treat us like this. But they choose not to because they want to enter into the sufferings of Christ in the sufferings of Christ, like scripture says, and endure the persecution that their immigrant neighbors would have had to endure anytime they encountered the Roman judicial system. And so there is this subversive way in which Paul and Silas are saying, you know what? The system is working for us. As Roman citizens, we are actually beneficiaries of this system. But we also know that as Christians, it's not okay for us to know that a system works for us and it dehumanizes our neighbors. So instead of just opting out of the suffering by waiving our Roman citizenship, we're going to endure it to expose the systemic sin that this judiciary is rooted in so that we can ultimately deconstruct it and reconstruct a more just and God-honoring system. Mm -hmm. like That's the kind of way in which we're invited in to be a repairer of the breach. They saw the breach. They realized that even though they were Roman citizens, they had nothing to do with creating the judicial system. They weren't lawyers. They weren't judges. They weren't anybody connected to the judicial systems. They were just beneficiaries of a broken system. But they knew that a system that worked just for them and not for all people was not reflective of God's will and not something that they could be content with as Christ followers. And so they subversively used everything that they had to ultimately shine a light on the sin, to expose it, and to create an opportunity to deconstruct the unjust system so that we can reconstruct it in a God-honoring way. Mm. So, like, that's a very tangible on the ground what we're supposed to do as we're trying to live our reconciliation and make God's name known and love shown in the world.
3: Yes. So, so just to reflect back, Dominic, to make sure we're hearing you right, part of the missionary strategy for Paul and Silas was to expose the injustice of the system uh, as a way of uh, cre- uh, expressing and embodying solidarity with those to whom the system was set up to hurt or oppose or disenfranchise. Uh, and in so doing, to quote Paul in another place, to store up in his body what was lacking in the cross of Christ. So, which is an audacious statement, I think, to Protestant ears, because what could be lacking about the cross of Christ, right? Uh, but but Paul, what Paul is saying, I think, is that he is extending and embodying the logic of the cross, the Philippians 2 logic of the cross, in an on-the-ground, tangible way, so that the gospel actually, uh, you know, knowing nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that the power of God can be made known. Is this? Am I hearing you right? Is this what you're talking about?
4: Yeah, and it's an it's a embodiment of Jesus' commandment to us. To love one another as he loved us in a very sacrificial, self-giving, selfless way. And by this, the world knew that Paul and Silas belonged to Jesus because they say, well, no other Romans choosing to live like this. Yeah. And so when you can live in this distinctive way that makes known to the world that there's something different about who and whose you are, the world is going to get interested in that kind of living. And then they're going to come and they say, hey, what makes you live in that way? And that's when we get the chance to articulate the fact that it's not that we're just some great ethical, moral people, but it's because there's some power at work within us that compels us beyond our human limitations to bear this kind of faithful witness. And the beautiful thing is sister and brother, you can live with this same power. You can live on mission with me. You can join on the, you can join the family of God and we can do this together. That's why justice and evangelism have to go together, because when we just do the stuff and we act like it's because of us, we miss the mark. And when we just go out there and praise Jesus, but we're not living a life that's reflective of the love and sacrifice and justice of Jesus, we miss the mark. But when we do it together, the world notices, and when they notice, they inquire, and when they inquire, we get a chance to invite.
3: Amen. Amen. Well, uh, maybe as we turn uh, to close, wrap up this uh, public part of our podcast, we'll continue with our Gravity Commons live people here after this. But uh, we've talked about sort of Hebrews in Egypt and there was no confusion for Hebrews in Egypt that this was not the promised land, Mm -hmm. right? And we've we've talked about Christians in Rome or Jews in Rome, and there was no confusion for Christians or Jews in Rome that Rome wasn't the promised land. Uh, But there does seem to be quite uh, a disorientation today, Dominique. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a lot of American Christians who think that America is the promised land. And so part of what I hear you talking about is recovering an ability to see injustice, to name Egypt and Rome today so that we can actually evangelize. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so maybe maybe as we close here, you close your book, you've already rich referenced this, but maybe this is a way into this. You close your book with a, um, a meditation on on generational sin and corporate responsibility. And I think we live in a neoliberal individualist age that says you are a product of your boots and your straps and your hands, and you are only responsible for what you volitionally choose consciously and I, I think what your book wants to do is uh is writ is rid us of these illusions yeah? yeah maybe fill out for us how is that part of the zeitgeist the spirit of the age and not the spirit of christ yeah and
4: for folks who have read both my books you realize i actually double down on this because it's so important um this notion of meritocracy and rugged individualism and Uh, this fierce independence is not the truth of the gospel. Um, And so for me, you know, there is this way in which the world talks about flourishing prosperity, abundant life. And then there are ways in which scripture talks about those things and they're not congruent. Um, And I think one of the ways in which we have muddied the waters is really kind of articulated a gospel that's made it seem like it's synonymous to be a faithful citizen and a faithful follower of Jesus. Um, but there are differences between pledging allegiance to a flag and to the kingdom. And we have to really uh, pastorally help people to understand where that rub is and why it exists, because when we don't, Christian nationalism is the byproduct. Um, and so for me, Philippians 2, again, is the guiding passage. Uh, when we take seriously that we're not supposed to do anything out of selfish ambition, but we're supposed to put the interest and needs of others before our own, that right there, <laughs> it flies in the face of all of the logics of rugged individualism, bootstrap mythology, those different things. But then also go to a passage like Jeremiah that tells us that we're supposed to seek the peace and the prosperity of our cities because when our cities flourish, our flourishing is found there. It's not when we individually flourish that our flourishing is found. It's when we seek the flourishing of the collective. And so the gospel is constantly trying to pull us out of this individualistic worldview and way of functioning into a biblical truth that says that we are inherently interconnected, that our, our flourishing is mutual, and that we are blessed to be a blessing. The blessings that come to us are not supposed to just be retained within us and our biological families, but they're meant to flow through us to make God's name known and love shown. And so I think there are these categorically different ways of thinking, and I like to do it through the lens of baptism. So there is this mantra that's so popular here in our country that blood is thicker than water. Well, that is true everywhere except in the scriptures. That actually tells us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines, and it's baptism that kind of Introduces us to a new mission, a new purpose, a new way of belonging. And ultimately, what we've really missed in the Western truth is this truth that baptism is trying to help us to see that we actually do belong to one another. And so when I see suffering, when I see suffering that's happening, quote unquote, beyond me or outside of my community, I don't turn a blind eye to it and say, "Oh, that's too bad," or I feel empathy, but like I'm not going to respond as if that oppression was happening directly to me. When I function in that way, I am not functioning as an interconnected body. But when I realize that the Me Too movement, as a male, should in impact me just as much as it impacts my sisters, and I have just as much of a responsibility to step up and speak up and to resist that as my sisters do, then I'm starting to actually understand what it means to function as an interconnected body. When I see families separated at the southern border and and I just can apathetically respond and say, well, if they just would have followed the law or if they just would have did whatever, then again, I'm conforming to the pattern of this world because questions of legality are relevant, but separations of family and locking kids up in cage, like that is not a gospel response to welcoming the foreigner amongst us, to actually really sitting and reckoning with the brokenness of systems and structures that create this kind of division that God never intended. And so this kind of gospel ethos of belonging, of understanding ourselves as interconnected, of mutual flourishing, I believe flies in the face of rugged individualism and this kind of notion of being a self-made person. The truth is none of us are self-made. We're all incubated within communities of support and families and uh, relationships of people investing in us so that we could become what we ultimately become. And so... I just think that there are some real discipleship issues at the core when we hear these kind of responses kind of reaffirmed within the body, because they, again, attest more to a conformity to the pattern of this world as opposed to the biblical truths that are revealed consistently from Genesis to Revelation.
3: Yes. The book, again, is called Subversive Witness, Scripture's Call to Leverage Privilege. Dominique, uh, this book and your previous book, Rethinking Incarceration, have been a huge impact on Ben and I. We have a book coming out this summer. Mm-hmm. One of our chapters uh, is called Love Always Reckons with Power. It's about mm-hmm. how Jesus's love has to recognize who has the power, what are they doing with it, and is it producing a just, a righteous way of living? And we see that in every interaction. And your your work has directly impacted what we wrote in that book. And so, uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, I know this is hard work for you. Mm -hmm. If, if people are listening, uh, how can they connect with you outside of your books? Are you online much?
4: Maybe not as much as people would like me to be, (laughs) Um, but yeah, so um, you can find me on Facebook at Dominique Du Bois Gilliard. Uh, That's my author page on Instagram. I'm at Dominique D as in Du Bois Gilliard. So Dominique D Gilliard and on Twitter, I'm at D D Gilliard. So,
3: Yeah great we'll put those in the show notes those links um uh, dominique we're gonna hang tight here and talk with some of our commons listeners but thanks for being on the podcast today
4: thanks for having me how is the joy i'll
3: tell you that uh that dominique yeah he
1: uh yeah he's great he knows he how to cut it up he knows, he, he knows how to bring it. There's, uh, I feel like he's, uh, I don't know. He's one he's one of those folks. Uh, I remember Lisa Sharon Harper feeling this way as well. That like she's yeah. going to break out into a, uh, like a, a great sermon. Yeah. yeah. Just at any moment, at any moment, it could turn into a sermon. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was feeling it. I was feeling good. I was feeling encouraged uh, by what by what he's bringing. It was it was great. Yep. I love having him on the podcast
3: Yep, He's, uh, <clears throat> I told him this in our uh, Commons live time but his, his work has been part of what's helped us reckon more with power and, um, yeah. and helped fill out and name one of the axioms for our book coming out this summer that I think has been really helpful for us, super helpful mm-hmm. So yes. uh, he makes me feel less crazy
1: yeah, no, he's he's great, and I we <laughs> we got into this in the Q and A uh, as well. And so, if you're listening to this podcast episode and you want access to that Q and A, that's in our uh, Gravity Commons hmm. uh, membership platform. Um, but he got into this in the Q and A. I was really glad that he answered uh, the question that I had for him about because I think it's interesting um, <laughs> to talk to because he he's basically he's a black man who. Functions primarily in white evangelical spaces. It's kind of his shaping and forming and and the people that he primarily speaks to. Um, And he had some super helpful, very intentional ways that he interacts in those spaces to make sure that his prophetic voice isn't blunted in the Mm -hmm. ways that I think whiteness would would try to blunt it. Um, But by the same token, he's also uh, very maturely... Seeking to um, get as many obstacles out of the way for white people to be able to hear him, I I just think I I, I, I've seen people kind of go. That's a debate, right? You know, like what's the best way to kind of approach this? Um, But I was just impressed with his intentionality about that and his um, um, maturity, uh, just in terms of being circumspect about his own uh, privilege in that sense, Um, but also. Uh, yeah. Wanting to make sure that mm. he maintains his ability to kind of keep a prophetic edge.
3: Because
1: mm. um, yeah, you know, you, you talk about this stuff, and it's not—it's not like everybody's excited about it. It's not like everybody's, you know, wanting to hear it. Um, but yeah, I think I think in the past I've made the mistake of thinking that thinking that I can just explain this. If I can just explain this to you, you'll understand. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that that was help, helpful for me. Just yeah. to hear that in the Q and A.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was great. <sighs> it was great, Ben. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. I had a question for you, Ben. Uh-huh. What's better than Ted Danson?
1: Uh, Ted Danson with somebody else? Ted singing. And That's why I feel like this joke is gonna. <laughs> Ted singing and
3: dancing.
1: <laughs> I got the I got the gist of where the joke was going. I knew I knew where it was going. So
3: How I'm did right. you know it was a joke? I I I just tried mm, to present a question. I, I
1: pick up on these cues. Yeah, yeah. I know you just presented it as a question. I I'm wise to your ways.
3: So I don't know, I know about
1: what's that. What's going on here at the end of these podcasts?
3: <clears throat> All right. Anyway.
1: All right, folks. We will see you next time. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for being listeners. Thanks for being listeners who listen all the way to the end. If you're it's listening. just for the dad joke, that's fine. That's you're fine. listening now. But uh, we're really uh, grateful uh, <laughs> to you, whoever you yep. are, listening all the way to the end. You are appreciated. Peace out. Peace.
2: Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it.
3: Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
1: You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
2: Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com.
3: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at
1: gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.